Romans chapter Romans Hebrews chapter 8 oh cause Romans 8 is like the the chapter okay so before we go to the word of the Lord let's go to um, the Lord thank you Father God for your word we thank you that it's without error it provides all we need to know for living righteous lives and for salvation so we thank you and pray now that you bless the preaching and the hearing of your word. Help us all to be focused on this. Help us all to, to, to know this is the word of the Lord. This is your word for us. It's to change us and even save people. So we pray this in your holy name. Amen. So last week we looked at the fact that God calls us to Christ-likeness. We are being transformed into the image of Christ. And so in Hebrews chapter 7, so that we have our, our um, entrance here, um, our context, and we're going to begin looking in verse 26. So Hebrews 7, 26. And what we're going to see is we looked at these attributes that are listed, and we looked at each one of them and said, this is how we should be growing in these ways. And yet, we should also be humbled that we fall far short in that because of the love and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we are given salvation, not based on how well we do this, but our salvation helps us to live these things out. So we're reminded that behavior can't save us because perfection is a standard, but we remember the priestly work of Jesus Christ as we're here today. So listen as we read again Hebrews 7 and then through the end of beginning at chapter 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. And that's where we talk about our humility and that he was exalted, but he went through the path of humility as well. Verse 27, he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priest, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. And then that brings us today to our verses um, we're going to go through chapter 8. I'm just going to read verses 1 through 7 to begin here. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up for not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. The word of the Lord. 
So just to kind of to, to go through this and, and look at what he's saying, verse 1, the point of what we're saying is this. We have such a, a high priest, and that we have just been told um, in, verse, in chapter 7 that we have such a high priest who is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. So we have this type of high priest and then he adds another thing, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. And if you look at that verse, it's a, it's a beautiful and magnificent verse. <clears throat> it's full, he's seated. We call our elders um, in, our, in our church, the elders individually don't have any authority. But as a group, they do. But it's as they are seated together, as a, and so it's therefore called the session, that's where decisions are made. So if, you're, if we have an elder, <coughs> excuse me, he's not at that meeting, um, then he's outside of that. He has no say, he doesn't have authority. It's only as a body, and always in scripture, elders in the church are always plural. So it's only in that session where church authority lies. So it's not in any one person, but it's in a session. And so we see Christ seated. That is a seat of power and authority. So it's the session of Jesus Christ. And it's not plural. It's he is seated at the right hand, which is the seat of power. And it's the right hand of the throne, which is where a king sits. And it's a throne of, sometimes it's called a throne of grace. It's called different things. But here, the throne of the majesty of heaven, the majesty in heaven, the throne of the majesty in heaven, and it's the, the, the idea of majestic, to be able to, uh, the kings were sometimes referred to as, as your majesty. And I heard someone pray a few months ago, and they were praying prayers of um, adoration to God. They referred to God as your majesty, which I thought, well, that's interesting. Occasionally, I'll try to remember, and I do that as well, referring to God as your majesty. Because he's the king, and it's, it demonstrates his holiness, his glory, his, his beauty. And we have Jesus Christ seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, where all things are controlled, where the throne is, where the specific presence of God is manifested in a way that is so glorious that the entire created universe encircles the throne. And we're told elsewhere what Jesus is doing there. He is, in Romans chapter 8, he says he is praying prayers of intercession for, for us. So you got Jesus at the right hand of the throne of majesty, ruling with power, praying right now for you, for a church, for individual Christians. So we sometimes think of the work of Christ that he did on, you know, his, his, uh, his active obedience, his, his living perfect life, and his passive obedience, dying on the cross for us. And he says from the cross, it is finished, and the work of salvation was finished, but he has an ongoing ministry still for us in heaven. He's still at work for us. He's still pleading for us. He's still praying for us, and from a position of power. So whatever we're going through, whatever we see, whatever problems we might have, you have to remember, you know, we'll say it's encouraging to know that other people are praying for us. And it is. But most of the times, maybe always, the reason people are praying for us is because Jesus has asked that people would pray for you. And then we respond in prayer. 
So the ministry of Christ from this powerful throne is meant to be encouraging to us. In verse 2, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent, and the word can also be is translated tabernacle, that the Lord set up, not man. So he's speaking to a group of Jewish believers who most likely have been excommunicated, kicked out of the synagogues. And so it's like, all right, the temple, the, you know, all these things, the priests, the worship, how do we as, as believers, now we don't have all that, how are we supposed to communicate with God? How do we, you know, how's this work now? And he says, we have a minister. We have someone who is doing God's work in the holy places, in the true tabernacle. Now he's contrasting that with the tabernacle that was on earth. There's a true tabernacle that is set up, that the Lord set up, not man. So it's not an earthly one. Verse 3, for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this high priest, for this priest, Jesus, also to have something to offer, which we were told he does. He offered himself as the sacrifice. Verse 4, now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. And we've been told he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek, not after the law. So he's saying there's something that's coming apart from the law, and he's going to talk about the law in a minute, but he wants us to understand our priest and who he is, and that we have a high priest. That it's not, when you read the Old Testament and you see what the high priest does, and as we get to later chapters, you'll see it, uh, the writer of Hebrews goes through this. So read through Hebrews and see what all the high priest did. It's being done for us. It's been done for us. So we're not without a high priest. And he says that these priests who were serving according to the law, verse 5, they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So all the tabernacle, all the furnishings, all the comings and the goings of the priests, everything that was done in worship in the Old Testament under um, the Mosaic Covenant, all of that was done according to things that God showed him in heaven. It represents heaven in some way. That's why you didn't mess with anything with the worship of God in the Old Testament. You would be killed for doing things wrong. Um, it was necessary so that when Jesus came, you saw a picture of him. And so that we see in the worship of the Old Testament the gospel. Because this is what represents Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the gospel. And all of these sacrifices, all of these things that were put in place were images and copies and shadows of things that were coming. Now Jesus is the reality. Jesus is serving there in that reality. So if, if you want to feel bad because you don't have the tabernacle, you don't have those priests, you don't have those sacrifices, what the writer of Hebrews, what the Holy Spirit is saying is, it's better. We have the reality. You have Jesus. You have the Holy Spirit that's communicating him to you. And he pleads for us. We, we have now skipped over copies and shadows and gone straight to reality. So we have to live in this knowledge that we live in this reality. And in verse 6, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. So we get this idea, okay, so what are 
the better promises. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, First, all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. So all the promises are concluded and fulfilled and held firm in Christ Jesus. So that a promise, whoever believes on me shall not perish but have eternal life. And that promise is yes and amen in Christ Jesus. Whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that promise is yes, amen, in Christ Jesus. So this covenant is enacted on better promises. That it is based on faith. That, and, and so what we're going to see is, even in the Old Testament, you were saved by faith. And it was only by the work of Jesus Christ that anybody was saved. In the Old Testament, you were saved looking forward. So you had these copies, these shadows. You had that faith to be able to believe and trust God through what he has revealed. But now on this side of the cross, as we look back, as we understand now what all those things represented, and we have the reality, and we have him with us, he's going to tell us in a bit what really makes this difference. Verse 7, For if that first covenant... This Mosaic covenant, this covenant where God was forming his, his, a nation, a people, which had been promised from Abraham in an unconditional covenant in which he promises to create a people and to, to keep a people and to, to have them to be innumerable. But this covenant that he's talking about now, if it had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So he's saying there is a fault with the covenant made with Moses. And what's the problem with it? And the problem with it is certainly not the law, because the law is perfect. The law is good. The problem is our flesh. That our inability to live up to our side of what God commands in the Mosaic Covenant. All the Ten Commandments, a perfect sacrifice, perfect life, all these things, the ceremonial things, even the, the holiness codes that God gave where you, you can't touch certain things, you can't wear certain things, you can't enter into certain places, and, and all these rules you had to follow if you did touch something. All of those things were to keep you separate from the world. Those things were designed as, as barriers that were supposed to keep you away from the stain of the world. So cloistering God's people into this place. You can bring people in, but you had to be careful when you went out. And there's things to learn from that, except because of the new covenant, we're told to go out. Now the whole world belongs to God. People are living in the kingdom of God in this world, and we're to be salt and light, and they need to recognize what's going on around them. But in this old covenant, you did this. And they had to promise perfect obedience. And then they had a sacrificial system to even make up for that. And they still were unable to follow God. And it was typically, they just go after other gods. It wasn't um, that the whole nation just tried the best they could and couldn't do it. It's blatant, rebellious, demonic worship, sacrifice of children, crazy stuff that the people of God would finally just abandon him. And that covenant was broken. And he, the, that covenant came with blessings and curses. Do good, blessings. You do bad, curses. And then finally all the covenant curses fell on that dispensation so that 600 years before 
Hebrews was written. You had King Josiah reigning. And he was a good king in Judah. And he, during his time, the book of the law was discovered. The Bible, the Torah, was discovered. It had been lost for a long time. And when they read it, they were cut to the heart. There was a, a national repentance. A national repentance. So I have this following stuff written in parentheses. Because when you hear of national repentance, we immediately think, man, I wish we could have national repentance. And our verse we use is, and if my people who were called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their evil way, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. And that is typically used to speak to the country of the United States. And that is a very wrong interpretation of that verse. My people who are called by my name. God's name is not Amerigo Vespucci. God's name is Jesus Christ. Who are the people called by my name? Christians. The church. If the church will humble itself, if the church will pray, if the church would seek my face, if the church would turn from their evil way, then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive them. And I will heal their land. So is that meaning that if, if the church repents, America will be healed? No, it means the, it means the church will be healed. It means the church would be healed, and that's what we need. How wonderful would that be for our country? For the church within her to be healed. So it begins with us. I use this verse, a good verse. You're called by his name. You need to humble yourself. You need to pray. You need to seek his face. You need to turn from your evil. And then he hears. Which insinuates maybe he doesn't hear so much. Hearing in the sense of, I'm going to answer your prayers. Because our prayers are messed up. We're still praying for wrong things. Not every prayer, but live in his word and then compare it. But during this time of Josiah, the church is the nation. There was a national repentance during, during Josiah's day. And they made a public covenant. This is in 2 Kings 23, if you want to look at it sometime. They make a public covenant to keep the law. The nation. And eventually they failed. So what did God say about that? So hold your place here. Go to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah is after the Psalms. And it's 31, 31. Jeremiah chapter 31 beginning in verse 31. So remember where we are. Jeremiah prophesying same time as um, Daniel, Habakkuk, um, and a couple other prophets. And there's vast sin in the land. They've turned away from God. They've broken his covenant. And then as a prophet of God, this is what God says. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them 
by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this is the covenant with Moses, the Mosaic covenant. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. This is why it's referred to as spiritual adultery to do such things. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their guide, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So that's awesome. He's saying they broke it. But he's saying there's going to come a time I'm going to make a new covenant. And I'm going to write that law. They can't keep on running their hearts. I'm going to write in their minds. And they're all going to know me. Because they'll have their spirit within me. They will have my spirit within them. And then we go to Hebrews. Chapter 8. Verse 8. Verse 7. He finds fault with that first covenant. Or else there would not have been an occasion to look for a second. It's right there in Jeremiah. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them from the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their guide, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more that should sound familiar because that's what we just read in Jeremiah he's saying this has been fulfilled in your hearing this is where you are you're in a better place if it depends on your obedience to keep the covenant with God then we are lost what's the John Owen the Puritan saying um, even our tears of repentance have to be washed by the blood of Christ. If there's anything that I can do to lose my salvation, I will do it. Thank God that he holds us in the palm of his hand. We have a new covenant. He writes his law into our minds. Remember, he's talking to a people that had just, they abandoned it. We will do everything you say. Sprinkling the blood on the covenant. Sprinkling the blood on the people. Blood on them. Yes, amen, we will do all that you command. And they don't. And we know that. It's the way we are. But what God said is, I mean, basically he's like, yeah, I'm sick of this. I'm going to write it in their minds. I'm going to write it in their hearts. And they're all going to know me. That's where we are. And we still sin against him. But thank God he adds, I'll be merciful towards their iniquities. I'll remember their sins no more. But we have greater knowledge. So when we sin, it is against greater light. But we have more than those Old Testament believers had. They had to have the Holy Spirit regenerating them or else they couldn't believe at all. But there's a difference in the way he's communicating the spirit of the risen Christ. The way that what unites the church throughout the entire world is that spirit. Where we are the tabernacle. We are being built together in living stones. Jesus Christ, the central cornerstone. He is the head of the church. He communicates 
all that he wants us to know through his word by his spirit. And he writes it in our heads and he writes it in our hearts so that the closer we come to him, the more we commune with him, the more we take part in all these things he's given us as means of grace, the more we start to recognize what's written there. Now this doesn't mean you don't need a Bible. Because one of the things that should be written on our hearts and in our minds is his word is truth. His word is my life. His word gives us hope. His word is where we need to be. His word is where we need to be memorizing, meditating upon all these things. But the flesh will fight you against that. The flesh will fight against your prayer time. The flesh will fight against your Bible reading. And the world does it. So if you look at times in the world where people are persecuting the church, Bibles are gone. Um, prayer is, you know, pushed away. Don't pray. Um, don't have a Bible. I, you know, didn't think about it. We see that in our world today. I got a little feedback because I'm raising my voice, man. <laughs> Thank you. So, you know, it was, it, sometimes in public schools they declare a thing, you know, no public prayer, no reading the Bible. It's like you still take a Bible in, you still pray. And what I, as long as there are tests in schools, there will, there will be prayer, something like that. You know, so we get all upset about what public schools are doing, but are you praying at home? You know, we get so we expect schools, daycare centers, whoever else, church programs to raise our children and our grandchildren and hopefully our great-grandchildren and shame on us and you get what's supposed to be gotten because households are very important in the economy of God. The church is very important in the economy of God. The, the government is very important in the economy of God and they all have their roles and they're not to be superseded and they all are to be handled properly and we've got it all messed up because we have to have secular, secular and in the home, it's like, mm, the, the state and the world and our flesh are not going to like anything that stands out as spiritual, truly spiritual. So we have to be careful with this. Make sure as households, we're in the word. If you're single, you're in the word and you're praying. If you're married, you and your spouse, in the Word and you're praying together. You have children, you're in the Word and you're praying together and for each other and one another. Training them up in the way they should go. When they're older, they will not depart from it. It's our hope and it's our prayer. These other things, good. Let's use them as tools, as wisdom dictates. But let's not abandon our own um, responsibilities. Because we have these things written in our hearts and our minds and if we listen, it's like you have more than a conscience now, but even that you can suppress the spirit, you can suppress the conscience and have it seared so that you don't listen to it. You've learned to listen to other things. You know, you, you attune your ear to something and you start, when we were in Russia, they had all the, t most of the TV shows we're watching, well some of them, the American TV shows, what they would do was they would speak Russian over the English. So the English was down low and the Russian was louder, but if you, I remember ER was the big show. So if you were watching ER in Russia, it was all in, in Russian. But if you listened carefully, you could hear the English so that you actually ended up just blocking out the Russian and you could just hear the English. And so I think that's what we do with the world a lot of times. We get used to listening to the world and we miss the Word of God because we're not listening to it. We've been listening to the wrong things. And the reason is the world will do what your flesh desires. I want, to, I want to handle it this way. The Word of God says, chill, man. Turn the other cheek. And the world says, send it in, baby. Send it in. Do it. And you're like, yeah. 
You know how it feels to go off on somebody. You know how it feels to, to go out and, and do something, break something, because the flesh wants to steal, kill, and destroy. And that feels good. And the spirit is going, don't give in to that. You're going to get addicted to it, and then you're not going to hear me walk in the spirit, not the flesh. Don't satisfy the desires of the flesh. I've written my... <laughs> you're a believer. Are you? Do we listen to God? It's very important because he says, I mean, let's look at verse 10. This covenant I will make with them. Well, verse 9, second half of verse 9. They did not continue in my covenant, so I showed no concern for them. That's interesting. And then verse 12, he says in this new covenant, I'll be merciful towards their iniquities. I'll remember their sins no more. So you've got this idea of remembering their sins no more. All right, so that doesn't mean God's like, somebody says, you remember that time John committed sin? What? God's like, I have no knowledge of this thing. It's like, oh, he doesn't forget anything. It's all there. Books will be open. But what God says is, I am not going to bring it up. I'm not going to bring it to remembrance. I'm not going to remember, you know, to, to remember something. Do this in remembrance of me. I will not remember your sin. But when you come to this table and you're taking the Lord's Supper, and you do this in remembrance of me, and you're declaring not your sin, you're declaring the Lord's death in your place. And that is what God remembers, his covenant with Christ, that Jesus died on the cross. I will give them mercy, I'll remember their sin no more, because I remember Jesus Christ and his covenant with us, so we do this in remembrance of him, proclaiming his death to ourselves, to the world, to the demonic forces that desire our hides? No. Jesus Christ died, better yet, was raised for our justification. These things are, are ours. And this is the good news. And this is the truth. So we look around and we think, things aren't looking so good. It's not. Things are looking bad. The time is short. So, there's a prophet they also prophesied during the time of Jeremiah Ezekiel. So look at Ezekiel 36. It's not so hard to find. It's after Jeremiah. You kind of just flip around there. You'll find it. Ezekiel 36. I'm going to read it today as we talk about it a lot. And I'm not sure how many people are, know these things well. But Ezekiel 36, 22. Same thing being prophesied in a different way. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. That's, there's theology in there now. Um, not doing it for you, doing it for my holy name. Moses even prays that you would save your people so that your name won't be blasphemed and they would say you can't do anything. So when we sin against God, we bring shame on the name of Christ. And that's one of the reasons church discipline is practiced to help maintain the dignity, the dignity of the name of Christ in the world. 23. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned 
among them, and the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. We see this as the work of the Holy Spirit. We see this symbolized in the act of baptism. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your guide. Which is what he has promised to us, to the church in Hebrews. And then if you go to chapter 37 of Ezekiel, verse 1. The hand of the Lord was upon me. He brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of a valley and it was full of bones. And he led me around among them and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley and behold, there were very dry, this is the valley of dry bones, skeletons everywhere, okay? It's like a horror movie. Bunch of dead, dried up people. That's, that's what happens. You turn into skeletons and that's what you see in tons of them. And he said, son of man, can these bones live? And he didn't say no. He just he knew enough to say, oh God, you know. And then he said, prophesy over these bones and say to them, oh dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. How can dry bones hear anything? Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So we have dry bones all over this country, possibly in the church. We prophesy over them and this is where faith comes from. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live. And you shall know that I am the Lord. This is the gospel at work. So I prophesied, and I was, as I was commanded, and we are also thus commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones coming together, the bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. And then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, say to the breath. And this is Jesus breathes over his disciples and brings them life. Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost. We are clean cut off. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. He's not talking about physical graves. He's talking about spiritual resurrection. As we're told in Ephesians, we are dead in our trespasses. Verse 14, I will put my spirit within you. Look at there we go again. And you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will do it, declares the Lord. This is all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And it's the valley of the dry bones. Every preaching class, if you go to seminary, this is big. <laughs> this is like the power of the gospel. Dead bones, dead dry bones speak, and God brings 
us to life. And we will all know him. So the question has to be for us, do you know him? I mean, not just of him, but you have some intimate knowledge of him. Because if you don't, you're not of the Lord. So trust in him. Call in him. Denounce your sin. Acknowledge the fact that you need him. Uh, and he promises to save you. And this will enter into your life. And you will come to know him. And your behavior will change. But more importantly, your heart will change. Your mind will change. Do you want people to know him? Do you want to see dry bones live? Do you have to preach the gospel? Prophesy over dry bones. I'm guilty of talking to people that I'm pretty sure are not believers and talking to them as if they are. There's a different way to proclaim the gospel and calls to repentance to people that you think maybe aren't believers. You don't want to hurt their feelings. They may be in a bad place anyway. But you know, if you know somebody's dying of cancer and you don't want to hurt their feelings and tell them, it's, you're, you're awful. So you have to be able to know, how do I tell people I love that you have a creator that loves you? And you're sinning against him. Are you following Christ? Are you running from him? Are you blaming him for everything? Are you angry with him? If you're not following him, why are you blaming him for anything? And your heart cries out. You know this is true. You need to turn your life over. You need to allow his love to compel you and pull you and draw you. And God has his people out there. And they'll be activated. Maybe not right then, maybe later, maybe sometime, but maybe somebody's been praying for them for years. Maybe their grandmother, great-grandmama was praying for that child, and they're dead, long gone in heaven. God answers that grandmother's prayer by you go, doing a, a terrible evangelistic presentation, but her prayer's answered, and that person is saved. Pray for your yet unborn great-great-grandchildren. Prophesy over dry bones. Our country is full of dry bones, and can they live? But the hour is late. Teach us to number our days. Satan is after only one thing, the church. Everything else is his already. He's after the church. He's after you. He's after us. He's after the church. One of the greatest things that I've noticed is we don't recognize the fact that we, we are that church. We're the church of which the Constitution speaks, of which the Bible speaks. We talk about the church, you're it. We don't have all the stuff you used to have in medieval times when the Roman Catholic Church, the medieval church had all these things where you recognize the vestments and all these things. Like, eh, that was all need to be done away with. Your hearts, you're united by the Spirit, you're the church. So he's after us. He's after your children. He is after your grandchildren. And how's he going to get to them? by manipulating all the non-believers out there who take control of all our institutions, even churches. Wake up. Be in the Word. Speak truth. Watch for truth. The world is the enemy of the church. And the more worldly, worldly we become, the more we're our own enemies. The flesh is the enemy of the church. And the more we walk in the flesh, the more we become the church's enemy. Pray for the church. It's the only hope. It's God's purpose in the world for his glory. Study the scriptures. Pray for your children, your grandchildren, great-grandchildren. Pray for yourself and family. Personal repentance. Find where you need to repent. We all have places. Just keep praying for repentance and revival. Pray for our country. Slaughter of babies. Legal, 
and fought for without a lot of cries really from the church. We need to repent. Homosexual marriage, legal, fought for without a lot of cries from the church. Young people taking hormone injections to change their gender without counsel, legally and celebrated, Planned Parenthood ready to write a prescription. If you just walk in because they didn't get to kill you when you were in the womb, they'll get you now. Anything to attack the image of God. Satan at work in institutions. If you don't see it, you're part, he got you. See it. Be a believer. Don't let people who appear to be believers and shake their heads and scoff at you and call you out on these things. They're Satan's mouthpiece. You be good. And you read the word. And you acknowledge what's right. And you acknowledge what's wrong. And you cry tears of repentance for yourself. And you cry for the salvation of those that you know and those that you see. There's an evil in the world. There is an evil in the land. Ideologies which have led to the slaughter of millions in Germany, in China, in the Soviet Union, and in many other places, alive and well and being promoted even by presidential candidates, sitting senators, and congressmen. And it's evil. And the church goes along. Wake up. Satan's at the door. Jesus stands at the door and he knocks. Who's going to answer? It's a still, small voice. Do you hear it? And who will answer the call? Who will go to the door? And the hour is late, my friends. But our God is greater. And he's given us all we need. But we have to be alert and we have to be bold. Always prepared to give a reason for the hope that is within us. And that hope is Christ. That hope is not a presidential candidate or president. That hope is not a stacked Supreme Court. Hope is certainly not keeping Roe v. Wade alive. Our hope is not a vaccine. Our hope is not some stimulus package. Our hope is not an education system or homeschooling. Our hope is Jesus Christ. That's what we preach. So we need to say with Job, though he slay me, I will serve him. And the hour is late. And God is in the midst. And we can do all things, hope all things, believe all things, and have a boldness. Because boldness is called for. And boldness is boasting in Christ Jesus. And sometimes you have to call things out. That will make you an enemy. And there's some meme I saw yesterday that makes a lot of sense. Well, as a guy speaking as a clip. And he said, do you want to know who's calling the shots? Do you want to know who's in power? Look at who tells you what you can and cannot say. Look who controls speech. It's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing... Did you see the basketball player that decided not to, not to kneel? And he was interviewed. Why didn't you wear the Black Lives Matter shirt? 
don't you believe Black Lives Matter? Why didn't you, why didn't you kneel? It's like, I'm the only one that didn't do something, actually. <laughs> it just, and so when you don't participate, you stand out. And he had presented the gospel over and over. Winsomely, kindly. He didn't speak bad about anybody. He just said, you know, I'm tired of people calling out some sins worse than others. We're all sinful. You know, and thinking that what we're going to do is fix, you know, is, is, you know, making things white and black and all these sorts of things. We need to come together. I'm a Christian. I believe we're all one in Christ Jesus. <laughs> Where's that? You know, that'll be there all the time. That's what needs to stand up. That's what needs to be out there. That's what needs to be out of our, out of our mouths. So, we have a great high priest. We have a new covenant. We have law written in our minds, written on our hearts. We have a throne of grace. We have a God who's seated at the right hand of the God on high, and majesty in heaven's praying for us. Well, you got to lose everything this world offers. That's what you got to lose. That was what Satan tempted Jesus with. Now, too afraid we buy it. What are you going to lose? You can lose everything and gain heaven. That's what you have. Let's pray. Father God, help us to cling to this treasure, this hope we have like an anchor in the heavens, that we don't lose our minds when um, the world spins out of control, that we even see it as opportunity for us to stand out just by standing still. Help us not to be mean-spirited, hateful, it was to be kind and gentle, but truthful and honest and wise and prayerful and hopeful. You are our God, and thank you that we are your people. Hold us close, keep us close, make us zealous for worship, Bible study, and prayer that we would not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as is the habit of some, that we, but we would encourage one another and all the more as we see the day approaching. Help us to love our enemies and to know what it looks like and what it means. And as we come to your table, Lord, help us to remember you, for you remember us. And as we pray in Christ's name, amen.